Right, the next instalment of the slow-moving car crash that is two centimeters. <laughs> Have you all adjusted your beautiful hair for this morning? Um, all right, Absalom's conspiracy, 2 Samuel 15. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, "'What town are you from?' He would answer, "'Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel.' Then Absalom would say to him, "'Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you.' And Absalom would add, "'If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that they receive justice.' Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow that I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counsellor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's followers kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then Absalom said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him and they halted at the edge of the city. All his men marched past him along with all the Kerathites and Pelathites, and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath marched before the king. The king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You are a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday, and today shall I make you a wander about with us when I do not know where I am going? Go back and take your people with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. But Ittai replied to the king, As surely as the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. David said to Ittai, Go ahead, march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were with him. The whole countryside wept aloud as the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. Zadok was there too, and all the Levites who were with him carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God, 
and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favour in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, do you understand? Go back to the city with my blessing. Take your sons Ahimaz with you, sorry, take your son Ahimaz with you, and also Abiathar's son Jonathan. You and Abiathar return with your two sons. I will wait at the fords in the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. When David arrived at the summit where people used to worship God, Hushai the archite was there to meet him, his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, if you go with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, your, your majesty, I will be your servant. I was your father's servant in the past, but now I will be your servant. Then you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. Won't the priest Zadok and Abiathar be there with you? Tell them anything you hear in the king's palace. Their two sons, Ahimaaz son of Zadok and Jonathan son of Abiathar, are there with them. Send them to me with anything you hear. So Hushai... David's confidant, arrived at Jerusalem as Absalom was entering the city. Just keep your Bibles open and there's an outline on your handout if you want to take notes as well. We're tracking pretty well for time today, so we might have time for questions after the sermon. If you're interested, we can have some questions. We're actually running nine minutes ahead of my schedule, so isn't that good? I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, thanks so much for your word. It's true, and it's good, and it's helpful. And Lord, we pray for us that you'll clear our minds and help us to focus on your word, work in us by your Holy Spirit to help us understand it, and then be willing to apply it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lara and I like watching movies together at home to relax. Uh, we especially like romantic comedies. Don't judge us. I feel your judgment. Um, Lara's got a particular knack for predicting the plot. Not that it's too difficult in most rom-coms, but even when there's a twist, she's pretty good. Uh, I'm seeing it coming. And there's a, uh, there's a horrible twist in our story today that is unexpected, actually. Um, though I'm on a, to the naked eye, I'm on a seam expert. It is. It's a, it's a horrible, horrible twist of fate uh, in Israel's history. Now, as followers of Jesus, twists don't concern us in life because we know how the story ends. In fact, for followers of Jesus, we're not concerned about terrible twists that might even happen in our lives. Obviously, they're concerning when things happen that are terrible, we don't expect it. But we're not overly concerned because we know how the story ends. As followers of Jesus, we know how the story ends for us. We know how the story ends for the world. I wonder 
Do you remember the thief on the cross, the second one who wasn't hurling insults at Jesus? As he hung there bleeding and breathless and dying alongside our Lord Jesus who was also bleeding and breathless and dying, this second thief didn't seem overly concerned, strangely. I wonder if you remember what he said. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, truly I tell you, Today you will be with me in paradise. What a spoiler. Jesus told him how the story is going to end for him as he hung on the cross. Why was this man so confident to ask? How did this man know that if he asked Jesus for eternal life, he would be given it right there on the cross? Somehow this man knew that Jesus had the power to grant him eternal life. Somehow this man knew how the story was going to end for Jesus and he asked for eternal life and he was granted eternal life. He humbly trusted in Jesus and his reward was eternal life. The Bible, in a wonderfully comforting way, is a great spoiler to life. It shows us how the story ends, which is a great comfort in any and every situation. And knowing how the story ends helps us to know how to live our lives today. What to do, what not to do, what to worry about a lot, what to not worry about a lot. So how is it that it helps us live our lives today? In what way does it help us live our lives today, knowing how the story ends? Well, let's have a look. Um, You may remember from last week we had three schemers. Uh, Joab, the commander of David's army, was scheming to get King David and Absalom, his son, back together. They'd been estranged. And to secure the kingdom, Joab did this scheme where he brought in this woman to act and tell this story to try to reunite David and Absalom. King David seemingly went along with this kind of plan of Joab's, but he had a scheme too, which was to bring his son back to town but not actually see him. So he just left him kind of in the town without facing him for a couple of years. And then Absalom had a scheme after a couple of years of frustration, not seeing his father, and he wanted to see his father, so he told Joab, I want to see my father, and he said no, and so he set Joab's fields on fire until Joab finally conceded, and Absalom gained himself an audience with his father, the king, which resulted in nothing more than a cold kiss from his father, and that's all we were told, and that's where we were left last week. Well, Absalom's at it again, he's scheming again, and this has been kind of a four-year plan that he's been rolling out, uh, we're told. And the first part of the scheme involves stealing hearts. Look at verse 1. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and 50 men to run ahead of him, and he would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Now, it's pretty unusual for an Israelite to own a chariot. Uh, That was kind of an Egyptian thing. Israelites didn't really have chariots, but he thought it might look impressive if he had a chariot to go with his really cool hair. So he got this chariot um, just to look good. And the 50 men, and they go ahead, and he goes through. Chariots didn't really work in Jerusalem very well, but here he is with this chariot to try to look impressive to the people. That's the only reason he got it. So he went to look good. He was good-looking, we're told, but his heart was full of sin and corruption. And for four years, we're told in verse 7, Absalom wooed the hearts 
of the Israelites standing by the city gate as the people were coming in and heading for the king. He would undermine the authority of the king and say, are you heading to the king to you know, try and seek an audience to get help with your thing? Uh, yes, well, you know, no point doing that. He's not going to help you. If only there was someone like me in the city who could help you then you, your answers would be, by the way, you know, what, what is it your concern is? And they would share his, their concerns with him. And he would say, verse 3, your claims are valid and proper, but there's just no representative of the king to hear you. He's a yes man. He's like this crooked politician. No matter what they said, he's like, oh, if I was in charge, I could help you. If I was in charge, I would get that done for you. Saying anything to win their vote. He looked impressive. He sounded like he was on their side. He made the people believe if they saw the king, that would be a waste of time, which sadly was kind of true. He was pretty inactive, wasn't he, King David? But Absalom assured the Israelites that he could help them if he was just in charge, which was a total lie. And he would flatter them after he'd impressed them and wooed them with a kiss, verse 5. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. He would take hold of him. That's actually the same uh, phraseology that was used for Amnon when he took hold of his sister Tamar and raped her. He would take hold of them and kiss them. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. It's the king who hands out the kisses in his kingdom as he gave to Absalom. We're told in verse 6, Absalom stole the hearts. It's a turn of phrase in our language, you steal someone's heart. But this I think we're supposed to take literally. Deceitfully, wrongfully stole what wasn't his, namely the hearts of the servants of his king. And for his next scheme, he will take power, steal power, by conjuring up more lies, this time for the king himself. Verse 7, at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I'll worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, okay. Go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Now the best lies have an element of truth in them, don't they? And this lie was a corker. Because Absalom was born in Hebron. And David, the king, was anointed king in Hebron. So their family had all these ties back to Hebron. So when Absalom said, I need to go back to Hebron to fulfill this vow to God that I'm going to worship him in Hebron, it sounded plausible to David. He's like, oh, yeah, Hebron, yeah, that makes sense. Sure, go for it. Um, he, didn't, he didn't question it. But the only vow Absalom had made was to steal the throne from his father that rightfully belonged to his murdered brother, his older brother. I wonder, was there more than just revenge in Absalom's mind when he murdered his brother for raping his sister. It was his older brother, and no doubt Absalom had the throne in mind. If, he's, if his brother's out of the way, he's next in succession. And I think this chapter confirms that theory. 
A big part of Absalom's motivation for killing his brother was personal gain, that he would become the king once David moved aside. Absalom's actually leaving town for the sole purpose of gathering an army to march on Jerusalem and take the power of the king for himself. Verse 10, Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, say, Absalom is king in Hebron, not just judge anymore like he was wishing in verse 4 supposedly, king. Now, there's this weird moment here. To keep David from suspecting anything, Absalom brings along these 200 clueless guests. He just invites these people and like, we're just going to a party. He hasn't told them about the plan. And they kind of follow along. Yeah, okay, cool, we're going to a party. Sounds good. So they follow along with Absalom to try to kind of increase the rouge that nothing uh, is underway. He's not trying to do anything untoward. He also recruited Ahithophel. Ahithophel is believed to be the grandfather of Bathsheba. He was a servant of David, but it's easy to believe he had a grudge against David who murdered his grandson-in-law and committed adultery with his granddaughter. So it's no surprise that Ahithophel was more than happy to jump ship onto Team Absalom. And that kind of helped with the whole rouge that Absalom wasn't trying anything sneaky. He's got these 200 people who don't know what's going on. He's got this servant of David who's on his side. Everything looks okay on the surface, but Absalom's plan is absolutely to dethrone his father, the king. Well, the betrayal of the king arrives swiftly and decisively once Absalom has set his coup d'etat in motion. And this, friends, is the most tragic day in history and not to be superseded for a thousand years. Look at verse 13. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. David tragically can see the writing on the wall and decides to leave his throne and depart the capital of his kingdom. And I've used this word tragedy twice. Why? David has committed heinous crimes. Yes, he has. His kingdom is a mess. And God's prophecy in chapter 12, verse 10, was that because of his sin, the sword would never depart his throne. And that's coming true. But David is still God's chosen king. He is God's anointed. Israel didn't choose David. God chose David out of absolute obscurity. I don't know if you remember the story when all his brothers were brought forward and God said, no, 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 this isn't the one, no, no, no. The youngest, ruddy, handsome was brought, this is the one. God chose David. He's God's anointed. 
and he's being driven out of town by his own flesh and blood. Absalom's self-promotional marketing campaign over the last four years to Israel has been a raging success. So David leaves Jerusalem. The king leaves Jerusalem. And we're told that his whole household followed, aside from his ten concubines that he left behind to take care of the household, which was probably a well-meaning thing to do, but it was a mistake, and we'll see that in the next chapter. Now, we're told there's all these foreigners in his entourage. There's Kerithites and Pelethites and Gittites. And there's this really interesting interaction in verses 19 to 22, if you've got your Bible open, between Ittai the Gittite, which rhymes and sounds funny, um, he's the leader of these Gittites. Now, the Gittites are probably like contract mercenaries. They're like foreigners that David's employed to, to work in his personal army to protect him um, and to, you know, they'd be paid um, for their work. They'd not long been in the service of the king and so David would have totally understood if they just stayed in town and you know, started working for the next king. They, they got no, there's no real reason why they'd be particularly faithful uh, to David because they're, they're hired guns, basically. So David questions Ittai in verse 19, saying, why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King, because they're following him along, and he says, go back and stay with King Absalom. Like, you know, don't put yourself in danger. Um, just stay with the new king and, and you'll be safe. But what beautifully, Ittai replies in verse 21, as surely as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King may be, wherever, whether it means life or death, there your servant will be. Does this remind you of anything? This immediately reminded me of the story of Ruth uh, and Naomi, whose husbands die. And there's no real reason. Naomi says to Ruth, look, you know, her husbands are dead. I'm going to go back. You, you know, you don't belong where I belong and I don't belong where you belong. And, you know, it's okay to go back home. I'm going back home. But Ruth says, no, wherever you go, I'll go. And she follows. It's this beautiful story of faithfulness and God rewards Ruth's faithfulness in the end. Um, it's this beautiful story. And it's this little... little beautiful story in the middle of this slow-moving car crash, as Will said, um, of a kingdom, is this Gittite who stays faithful to the king. There, and it's, it's, it's interesting. Like There's still this faithfulness to the king, and we have to ask ourselves why. I mean, he's, he's done such wrong. He's been so remiss in his leadership ever since his sin. But still there are these ones who are faithful to him but the first thing he says, interesting, isn't it? Surely as the Lord God lives, I'll be faithful to my king. So he stays. He continues to remain faithful to the inept, anointed one of God. Now feel the weight of tragedy with me, friends, as we look at verse 23, which isn't on the screen. <laughs> Sorry. Verse 23, the whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by, as David and his household leave the city. 
And the king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. The king again finds himself hiding in the wilderness like he had from Saul all those years ago. And it's probable that he wrote Psalm 3 at this moment, which says, Lord, how many are my foes, how many rise up against me, Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. What a re- look, this is such a reversal from chapter 5. David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. David took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. This is not that long ago when David captured, conquered Jerusalem and set himself up as the king. It was this high moment for God's chosen nation. And in chapter 6 we read, Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord up to Jerusalem, it's high, Jerusalem, with shouts and the sounds of trumpets, dancing in celebration has now turned to weeping and mourning as David's throne is captured and the king is driven from his royal city. It's a time for Israel to rightly be frightened, to be shaken, to be upset, to be anxious for the future. Could things possibly get any worse for David? Well, yes, seemingly they do. Verse 25, the king said to Zadok, his priest, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favour in the Lord's eyes, he'll bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. David has humbly reached his rock bottom. His family is in tatters. One son is dead. One son has turned against him. His throne is lost. He once again finds himself in the wilderness. And worse still, David feels separated from the presence of the Lord. And humbly, he knows that's probably what he deserves. He doesn't deserve God's favour. And he sends the ark back into the city and throws himself at the feet of the Lord and is ready to accept whatever fate is his at the hands of God. He doesn't know what's going to happen, but he's humbly ready to receive whatever's going to happen. It's simultaneously a moment of greatest arrogance for Absalom who forcibly takes what is not his and greatest humility for David who throws himself upon the mercy of the Lord. Lord God, do to me whatever seems good. In other words, Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. There's striking parallels between David and our Lord Jesus, who would come a thousand years later. And they're not to be ignored. David prefigures Jesus here in 2 Samuel 15. 
The king is treated despicably, the rightful king, by those who claim to be his subjects. God's presence has seemingly departed from David. The father turned his face away from our Lord on the cross. Somehow, though, it seems that David knows Hannah's prayer. He knows how this will end. It seems he's seen the spoiler. He left the concubines back in town to look after the household. It seems he knows he will be restored. And at the same time, I I think he greatly fears he's wrong. (laughs) He won't be restored. Hannah's prayer says this, and this is the next bit after what I read earlier. It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. That first line, there's nothing more countercultural, I don't think, to say than that in our culture. It's not by strength that one prevails. Surely it's absolutely by strength that you prevail. It's by intelligence, it's about a good education, it's about lots of money, it's about power. It's about strength, isn't it? That you win. It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give his strength. He will give his strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. It seems as if David knows how this will end, although he fears He's wrong. For the moment, he's a broken man, a man of sorrows, in a nation of sorrows. Verse 30, David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went. Now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom, So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Just as the Lord Jesus would do in a thousand years' time, multiple times, in order to pray, climb the Mount of Olives, betrayed, broken and barefoot, David prefigures Jesus as he climbs the Mount of Olives to pray. And he cries out to God for help through his many tears. And God immediately and unexpectedly answers David's prayer. When David arrived at the summit, where people used to worship God, Hushai the archite was there to meet him, his robe torn and dust on his head. Ah, Hushai the archite, you say, of course. David said to him, if you go with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, your majesty, I will be your servant. I was your father's servant in the past, but now I'll be your servant. Then you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. Won't the priest Zadok and Abithar be there? In other words, the priest Zadok and Abithar will be there with you. Tell them anything you hear in the king's palace. Their two sons, Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, and Jonathan, son of Abiathar, are there with them. Send them to me with anything you hear. So, Hushai, David's confidant, arrived at Jerusalem as Absalom was entering the city. God gives him this man, Hushai, who is in mourning as well because of what's happening to David. And David knows that he could be used as an informant. So he sends him into the city to be an informant for him. 
It's good and right to faithfully pray to God in li- as in line with his will as we can best work out. Pray to God and then do whatever we can, humanly speaking, to see that our prayers are answered. This is what David does. David prays that God will help him, that he'll frustrate Ahithophel, and then he's presented with this man. And he sends him on his way to frustrate Ahithophel's, to, to inform on Ahithophel's schemes. David prayed and God gave him Hushai, the archite, a loyal man. And that's where we're left. What's going to happen next? David's in the wilderness. The ark is gone, back to Jerusalem. Absalom's just marched into town. What's going to happen next? We don't know. I think there's two things for us to learn from this passage this morning, two things to take to heart. The the first is, we too, like King David, I think, and the thief on the cross, I'm certain, must take Hannah's prayer to heart. This is God's process of bringing the world to submission before his son. There are people in this world who will rise up and assert their will like Absalom, and there's times when all will seem like it's lost, but it's not. God will always guard us and guide our feet. And God will restore his anointed one. Jesus reigns, and one day he will return in judgment. Our God is an almighty God, and he is a faithful God. And no matter the storms that surround us or our world or our nation, the storms that surround your mind and your heart, if we trust in the Lord, as David did, he will strengthen us because we are with Jesus. We are in Christ. And God has, a pro- God has promised that his anointed one will see victory. The thief on the cross knew this. He knew it wasn't the end for Jesus. And if he trusted in him, it wouldn't be the end for him. God will again give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And that's what happened three days later when God rose Jesus from death to everlasting glory. I wonder, what's troubling you at this time? I posted in our newsletter on Friday what's troubling me. One of the things is the the direction our country is heading. Western Australia has just passed this most despicable abortion law in the ACL's opinion, in the world. No longer are aborted children who survive the abortion have any human rights. They're just left to die with no pain relief. Abortions can be made based on gender. Abortions can be made based on Down syndrome, suspicion. Abortions can be made based on social, psychological, for social psychological reasons. In WA, it's just evil. It's just evil. And it just seems our country is headed in the wrong direction. Things are getting worse. 
decisions we're making as a nation are, are, are more and more godless. And so we ask, you know, is God at work? And we remember Hannah's prayer. Yes, he is. He will strengthen the feet of his faithful ones. He will exalt the horn of his anointed one. In the end, Jesus will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. This will happen. We need not fear. We ought to be concerned and we ought to pray. And we know we pray to a powerful God. And so we need to pray for unborn children. But we can trust that God's will will be done. And in the end, God's enemies will be humbled. And that brings me to my second point, which is if we long to see our enemies humbled, which we do, we ought to humble ourselves as well before our great and glorious King. We ought to humble ourselves before Jesus. Verse 15 is a really compelling verse, and it's, it's easy to gloss over as we read the passage. The king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. This was David's faithful ones. We're ready to do whatever you want. Ishai the Gittite, he had no need to be loyal to the king, but he was. Are these your words to Jesus? I'm ready to do whatever you choose, Jesus. Whatever you think is best for me sounds good. They ought to be our words because we know how the story ends. We know Jesus will return in victory as the ruler and judge of the whole world and he will glorify us, his people. He will raise us up if we've already died. He will take us up if we haven't yet to be in glory with him. As he is glorified, so he will glorify his people. That is the promise. Now is not the time to abandon Jesus as we see the world going to hell in a handbasket, it seems. Now is not the time to deny him three times when your friends at work say, are you a Christian? Do you go to church? Yes, I do. Yes, I am. Despite the storms all around us, now is the time to stay faithful lest we miss out on the victory that is to come. And the victory is to come. We, by God's grace, are the servants of our great and glorious king. We are ready to do whatever the king chooses for us to do. Let me pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, thank you so much that you're in charge of all things. We thank you that even though things can seem out of control and heading in the wrong direction and betrayal of you can seem to be increasing, we know that you're in charge and we know that you will send Jesus back into our world when you are good and ready to judge the living and the dead. We know as Christians the victory is already won at the cross. Help us to be really faithful uh, in our hearts on our own in following Jesus. Help us to be really faithful in public when we're confronted with opposition or even just questions from people to be Jesus. And Lord, we desperately pray for those innocents in our land who are suffering at the hands of the gross evil 
He goes on in our land, Lord, we pray for unborn children, that you will protect them. Lord, it seems like laws can never be changed, but we know they can. And we pray that you will work powerfully in our country to reverse these godless laws. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.